Have you noticed the traffic getting worse in our small town of Columbia, Tennessee? It is worse. I tell you what, I've, for a long time I've always said, I'm glad I don't have to drive to Nashville to work every day, but I'm telling you, just driving around Columbia is getting worse. Just seems constantly more and more traffic right here in our small town. But I'll tell you something, did you notice this morning traffic wasn't nearly as bad? This is Sunday morning, and apparently a lot of people aren't going anywhere on Sunday morning, and specifically they're not going to church on Sunday morning because the streets are a lot clearer on Sunday morning than they are on any other day of the week, which probably is a sad commentary on our small town. During the week, we're willing to go anywhere and do anything to serve ourselves, but when it comes to serving God on the Lord's Day, not so much. Well, the idea that people don't engage in religious activity is pretty obvious just from something like the traffic patterns. But did you know that in a survey by ABC News recently, 90, uh, uh, only only 13% in this ABC poll, only 13% of Americans say that they have no religion. So something like 87% of Americans say they are religious. Only 13% say they have no religion. But again, what we see, uh, the, the outward manifestations of this seem to contradict the polls. Uh, even in so much as people just going to church. 87% say they have religion, but apparently not nearly that many even go to church on a given Sunday morning. And so there's a lot of discrepancy, a lot of difference between people's claims of religion and their actual practice. But when we really boil it all down, what men call religion is not really religion insofar as God is concerned. God's definition of true religion is much different than what men suggest. And so this morning we have a very simple question to investigate in our study together. And our question is simply, are you religious? Now we know that a lot of people are going to answer yes to that. 87% of Americans are going to answer yes to that question. But we want to contrast what men view as religion, true religion, and what God says is true religion in his word. That will be our study for a few minutes this morning. We stop here just briefly to thank you for being here this morning. We're glad for the presence of each and every one. We really appreciate your interest in religion that brings you out on this Sunday morning. We have a beautiful day in Middle Tennessee and a great privilege to be able to be assembled together. We're glad you're here. We're especially grateful for our visitors. We want you to come back every time you have a chance to be here. And of course, we're always open to your questions about what we're doing and why we're doing it this way as we worship God here at College View. Okay, so to the question, are you religious? I think there are some things to learn. For instance, I think that we can learn something from Paul's interaction with the men of Athens. Now, a little bit of background before we look to the verse that I have in mind. We know that Paul visited the city of Athens on his second missionary journey. He'd been under a lot of persecution in fact, he, uh, uh, unbelievers were running him out of town right and left. Uh, he'd had to flee from Thessalonica and then from Berea. And he actually got separated from his traveling companions and he was in Athens by himself for some time. Athens was a major city of that day. But it was also a city that was completely given over to pagan worship. They had idols erected all over the city of Athens. Of course, it was, it was, and we remember it well, as a 
very important historic Greek city. But they had pagan idols erected all over the place to every imaginable kind of a god. They had a god assigned to everything. So as Paul viewed all of that, and when he saw that, he was compelled to speak out and to teach them about the real God of heaven. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Well, first of all, I want to point out that Paul acknowledged that these Athenians were very religious people. He, he acknowledged that. And so they were engaged in religious practice, but notice he said, you worship in ignorance. You don't know what you're doing. You're uninformed. You're not knowledgeable about what you're doing. I think a first observation is that if any religion is as good as another, then what the Athenians were doing already was good enough. They were very religious. But obviously that wasn't the case. Paul said that they were ignorantly worshiping some god they called the unknown god. The word ignorance, we might comment about that just a moment. You know, if, if someone were to say to you, you're just ignorant, we would take that as an insult because that's the way the word has sort of evolved and and to be identified or have someone identify you as ignorant is, is sort of an insult. But here, Paul's just using the word to simply denote uninformed, uh, not knowledgeable. They hadn't learned, and they needed to learn. And as Paul wrapped up his sermon in verse 30, God is now declaring to all men, uh, to, to men that all everywhere should repent. And so they needed to change from that. They weren't informed. They were ignorant. They weren't knowledgeable, hadn't been taught. But they needed to change. They needed to repent. And so from the men of Athens, in regards to their religion, we would say one who is religious but ignorant or uninformed, that needs to change. You can't go about your religious service to God and be content to, to remain in an in a ignorant or uninformed status. But I really believe that that is a lot practiced in our world today. Because again, if we were to reference the polls, if we were to reference surveys that are made, the American public is almost completely uninformed about the things the Bible teaches. It's just shocking when very simple Bible questions are asked of these people who identify themselves as religious, when very simple Bible questions are asked of them, they don't know the answer to them. And so if that's the case, if, if your religion is one that is uninformed, you haven't studied and you don't know, that needs to change. I think we can also learn something about uh, religion from considering the Pharisees. We know that name Pharisee, don't we? We know that they represented one of the particular divisions of the Jews' religion, especially in the time of Christ. And Jesus often interacted with the Pharisees and very often the interactions were not pleasant. There was great controversy and contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. But the Pharisees were very religious people. In Acts chapter 26, verse 5, Paul identifies himself having been a Pharisee. He said, I lived as a Pharisee according to, notice he said, the strictest sect of our religion. 
The Pharisees were very strict in observing religious practices. Now that involved some of the applications of the law of Moses. For instance, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said the Pharisees were so meticulous in observing the tithing regulations of the Old Testament law of Moses that when they brought in their crops, even if their crop was just a crop of herbs, and maybe just a handful of herbs that they that they gained from their herb garden, they would even give a tithe or a tenth of those herbs, even though the whole harvest may have only amounted to a handful. They would divide that up in ten parts and give a tenth to the Lord. So they were very meticulous about this. But the big problem, and, and by the way, Jesus didn't condemn them for doing that. Uh, Jesus didn't say, oh, you guys have just gone overboard in observing the law. He did not, he did not condemn them for even, even tithing their garden herbs. But the real problem with the Pharisees was that they had gone about to establish a lot of their own rules about religion. And, and they had all kinds of rules and regulations that, that they had invented that they tried to enforce just as diligently or stringently as they did the law of Moses. And concerning that, Jesus applied the prophecy of Isaiah to them. And, and so Isaiah prophesied this and Jesus repeated it and applied it to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, beginning verse 7. Ye hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I want you to notice the word vain. He says, in vain do they worship me. And so vain means worthless, good, or no, good for nothing. It was religion. It wasn't accomplishing anything. It was religion, but it wasn't getting the job done. What was the problem? They were teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And so here we learn a valuable lesson about religion. A religion that follows man's teachings instead of God's is just vain. Religion. This certainly applies in our day and time, doesn't it? Because as we look about the religious world of our time, we see religious bodies holding conventions, uh, holding uh, conferences, synods, and, and councils. And what are they doing when they meet together? In that? They're actually voting on things. They're voting on legislation for the church. What are they doing? Well, they're establishing their own rule system for their religion. Jesus already told us that that makes your religion good for nothing or vain if we're following man's teachings rather than God's. And so that religion isn't proper and it's not getting the job done if it follows the teachings of men rather than God. I think we can learn something about religion and what it ought to be and what it should not be by looking at Paul or Saul of Tarsus prior to his conversion. Now, we were just talking about the Pharisees, and Paul was one. Before he was converted to Christ, he was a practicing Pharisee. He was not one who was just going through the motions of religion. He was very involved in that Pharisee religion. Notice how he identifies himself in Galatians chapter 1, beginning verse 13. For ye have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Uh, my fathers. I want you to especially concentrate on Paul's words here that he was 
exceedingly zealous for his religion. And so as I was saying earlier, he wasn't one who was just going through the motions of religion. He was devoted. Was he sincere? Absolutely sincere. Was he enthusiastic? He was very enthusiastic about his religion. Okay, now let me ask you this. He's sincere and enthusiastic. How would you rate his religion? Well, I'll tell you, most people will give him an A, probably an A+. plus. He's sincere and very zealous or enthusiastic. He's got it, right? He's, he's, he's on the mark. But the answer, of course, is absolutely not so. He was, he was dead wrong in his religious practice. And from that, we learn that zeal and enthusiasm is not enough. It's curious, don't you think, when people think of sincerity and enthusiasm, that, that doesn't give you a pass in other realms. For some reason, it gives you a pass in religion. But if you had a plumber come to your house, and he was really a lousy plumber, and the pipes are leaking and the basement's filling up with waste water after he's done his work, and you would say, well, I'll tell you, he, the plumbing's not right yet, but he sure was zealous about his work. We wouldn't give him a pass. We're not even a plumber. We're not giving a plumber a pass just based upon zeal. But for some pe- reason, people want to give religious folks a pass if they're sincere and enthusiastic. But we learn from the Apostle Paul that sincerity and enthusiasm do not guarantee that one's religion is right. Let me take you to what I think is a specific warning that was given to early Christians about religion. Uh, and, and in this particular warning, Paul says this in Colossians 2, beginning verse 23. These matters, he says, which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so here, notice the idea, the appearance of wisdom and a self-made religion. The appearance of wisdom in a self-made religion. How would that work? Well, it would work very much like what people talk about today. When it comes to religious discussions, and, and you all, many of you have had the occasion to, to try and engage people uh, to talk about spiritual matters, and, and people are not going to the Bible to prove their religious practice is correct. And they will, it's gotten so, in our day, people not even interested in a religious discussion that goes to the Bible. Instead, they want to talk about what appeals to them. This, this seems right to me, or this makes sense to me. I like it this way. This goes back uh, several decades ago to what was identified in the time. We're probably talking about things 50 years ago or more. There was what was identified as the ecumenical movement. And the ecumenical movement suggested, you're okay, I'm okay. You do what you want to do, I'll do what I want to do. If, if you like that, that's good for you. That's not exactly what I like. I'm going to do what I like, you do what you like. Everybody's okay, I'm okay, you're okay. In a nutshell, that was the ecumenical movement. And it really took hold. Uh, in fact, there was a slogan that was very popular, and some of you who are older will remember, you even would see signs Attend the church of your choice. Your choice. What you like. What appeals to you. Don't you think that that sort of 
fits the description of what Paul was identifying here. It's the appearance of wisdom. It makes sense to you. You like it. It is, but it is self-made religion. And notice he says here that that sort of thing is of no value. No value at all. And so from that warning, I think we would conclude that just because a religious practice appeals to me, it seems okay to me, it appeals to my human wisdom or thinking, that doesn't mean it is pleasing to God. And we really need to learn that lesson. The religious world needs that lesson so badly. And so to these legions of people who identify themselves as religious, remember 87% of Americans say they're religious. They're not going to church on Sunday. The, the traffic patterns are even different on Sunday because nobody's going anywhere. Their religion is obviously flawed. And we see that lots of the flaws of religion are clearly identified in these verses that we've just been reading. But I want to tell you, we can surely learn something from what amounts to a simple definition of what pure religion is. Pure religion, that's what we want, right? That's what we've been trying to talk about in our lesson this morning. That's what we're seeking. So what is pure religion? James identifies it in James chapter 1, verse 25. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father to visit, father, visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, look at this for a minute. He, he speaks of religion that is worthless and he contrasts that to pure and undefiled religion. If there is a pure and undefiled religion and there is religion which is worthless, that surely suggests that there's a distinction to be made and we need to be making it. So which would you have? You have a choice. You can have this worthless religion or you can have pure and undefiled religion. What's your choice? Well, I'll take the pure and undefiled, wouldn't you? What if you went to a store and you, know, and you go up to the butcher counter and, and the butcher behind the counter says, okay, we got some meat here. We've got this meat that we're not too sure about. We don't even know where it came from. And we don't know how old it is, and, but we've got this other over here. Now, we just, we just butchered this meat, and we know it's good, and it's, it's, it's uh, uh, pure. What do you want? Well, there wouldn't be any question about what you would consume, right, if it came to food. What about religion? You have a choice. You have a religion that is worthless, or you have pure and undefiled religion. Which will you have? Well, that's clear. I don't want that pure and undefiled religion. All right. Now, in this, in this context then, notice up here he says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious but does not bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless. So what would you learn from that? There is such a thing as pure religion, but there is worthless religion. What is the worthless religion of this context? Could I say it simply this way? The worthless religion of this context is a religion that does not affect your daily life. Right? He claims to be religious. He thinks he's religious. But he doesn't even bridle his tongue. He doesn't control the way he talks. He thinks he's religion, but he, he thinks he's religious, but his religion hasn't affected him enough to even control the way he talks. His religion hasn't changed him. His religion hasn't affected his heart. His religion is not obvious in his daily life. His religion is worthless. 
So what about us? You know, there are a lot of people who go to church on Sunday, not, not as many as they should, obviously, but there are people who go to church on Sunday, but they think they can just go on and live however they want every day of the week otherwise. James here identifies that as a worthless religion. Pure and undefiled religion is going to affect your life, change the way you live. It's going to cause you to do things like visit the orphans and widows in their distress. It's going to cause you to keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's what pure religion is. What about us? And so from that simple definition of pure religion, we would clearly conclude that a religion that does not govern our daily lives is not acceptable. What about religion? Back to our very initial question. Are you religious? Most people are going to answer yes to that. But when we look to the Word of God, we see that there's a lot of problems with religious practice. Uh, some of it's uninformed. Uh, some of it is based upon man's own teaching and conclusion. Some of it is sincere, enthusiastic, but not following the Word of God. Some of it appeals to our human wisdom and doesn't pertain to the things that God has revealed. And some of it is religion that doesn't affect our daily lives and make us different people, the kind of people God wants us to be. Are you religious? Are you religious the way God desires us to be religious? Finally, let me suggest to you that a lot of what poses for religion, again, really isn't what God wants. Notice this. In the reading that was read for us earlier by Damon, Matthew 7, 21, beginning, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then will I declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here Jesus specifically identifies people who were religious. And in, in this judgment scene kind of scenario that Jesus is depicting here, he says these people are even going to plead their case. They're going to argue, hey, I was real religious. I was very religious. I did a lot of religious deeds. But Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. And the problem was lawlessness. They weren't adhering to the law of God. And their religion, therefore, was not what God wanted it to be. What about us? And back to the simple question of the hour. Are you religious? The only religion that is right, the only religion that's going to, to affect our eternal salvation is the religion identified in the pages of the Word of God. Have you submitted to that? Are you living the way God wants you to live? If you're not yet a Christian, you certainly need to make that decision to obey the simple gospel plan. Hearing the truth, believe it. Repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If we can assist in your obedience, we'd be anxious to do that this morning. We'd also be glad to sit down and study with you more if you have questions that still need to be answered. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been faithful, that your religion has been vain. You haven't been really following carefully the Word of God in your daily life. Come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.